The name Nuremberg has for many people become a byword for post-war settling up for the prosecution of Nazis accused of war crimes during World War II, far fewer of us are aware of a very similar set of trials of the Japanese military and political leadership following the Pacific War, which of course involved so many Australian POWs, despite, I might add, the important role played in this trial by an Australian judge. The Tokyo trial, or the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, to give it its official name, was established by US General Douglas MacArthur, who was the supreme commander of the Allied powers following Japanese surrender after the US bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, as with Nuremberg, the victors of the war believed that Japan's leaders, those responsible for numerous unspeakable atrocities, needed to be held publicly accountable, some of them anyway, and punished for their alleged crimes. Gary Bass tells the story of the trial and discusses its legacy in his new book, Judgment at Tokyo, World War II on Trial and the Making of Modern Asia. He joins me now. Hello there. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, Gary, I need you to set the scene a little bit for us here, please. For those of us who are a bit rusty on World War II history, what are the important moments on the timeline between the dropping of the atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and Japan's surrender and the establishment of this tribunal? And, and who are the key players? So some context, please. Yes, so August 6th is the dropping of the atom bomb on Hiroshima, August 9th is Nagasaki. In between then, you have the Soviet entry into the war. And on August 15th, you have the surrender of Japan. That is formally put in place at a uh, signing ceremony in Tokyo Bay on September 2nd, 1945. Right. And then shortly after, MacArthur announces the establishment of the tribunal. Uh, By the way, can I just... uh, Did you say the Soviet Union entered the, the war in the East? I'm not conscious of that. Did that happen? The Soviet Union does enter the war. Stalin had promised that soon after the surrender of Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union would turn around and and go to war against Japan. Gosh, with all my interest in military history, I've never heard that before. Um, Okay, could you compare for us, please, Gary, the differences and the similarities between the Tokyo trial and the earlier Nuremberg trial and the extent to which the earlier tribunal set the model? Were there any important lessons or examples they took from Nuremberg to Tokyo? So they're very similar courts, right? Nuremberg is called the International Military Tribunal. Tokyo is called the International Military Tribunal for the Far East. Their charters are almost identical, They are both concerned with charging German and Japanese war criminals, respectively, with aggression, crimes against humanity, and conventional war crimes. So there's a lot in common. But one crucial difference, and that is very important for understanding the Tokyo trial, the Tokyo trial has 11 judges, including a bunch of major Asia-Pacific powers. Nuremberg, you only have four judges, the United States, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, whereas at Tokyo, you have all the major allied powers that were fighting in the Pacific, including Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and crucially, a Chinese judge, an Indian judge, and a Filipino judge. So you get a lot more Asian voices, and there's much more sort of Asian justice after this terrible war in Asia. There's no equivalent at Nuremberg, right? Having a Chinese judge 
At Nuremberg, there's no Polish judge. There's no Jewish judge. There's no one speaking directly for the victims of crimes against humanity, whereas the Chinese judge and the Filipino judge and the Indian judge are in a position to do that. Very interesting. And it had jurisdiction over crimes that occurred over a greater period of time than our standard up till now understanding of World War II, which is sort of 39 to 45. Uh, This went from 1931, the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, to uh, Japan's 1945 surrender. They actually start in 1928 Ah. with Japan militarizing. Then it runs into... The invasion of uh, northeastern China, Manchuria, in 1931. The full-scale assault on China starting in July of 1937. And then in December 1941, Pearl Harbor, the attack. And at the same time as Pearl Harbor, attacks on the British Empire on the Philippines. Right. And those, again, for further context, those uh, newish crimes, crimes against peace and crimes against humanity which I think were already introduced into Nuremberg. Is that right? That's right. Mm. Yep. And they were, they were brought in to um, Tokyo. Now, you open the book with the story of the capture and attempted suicide of Japan's wartime Prime Minister Tojo Hideki, who's actually resuscitated by the US soldiers sent to arrest him so that he can stand trial. On his deathbed, he has this amazing quote, which is pertinent to what we're going to talk about. The Greater East Asia War was a justified and righteous war waged by Japan to free its Asian neighbours from the oppressive grip of European colonialism. Now, does he ever waver from that sentiment, Gary? No. Tojo Hideki, who was the leading wartime prime minister of Imperial Japan, goes throughout this trial and goes to the gallows convinced that what he did was right. And he makes the case in public pretty, you know, pretty stridently that Japan has fought a war of self-defense against predatory European colonial powers. Japan has nothing to apologize for. In private, he didn't believe particularly strongly in the idea that Imperial Japan was really there to liberate other Asians from from the Western powers. He understood that Japan was itself making a drive for dominance. But in public, he makes this sort of principled argument quite strongly. And it does resonate with some people who think, well, maybe we did fight a sort of principled and patriotic war. Well, in fact, some of his, his statements, I would not like to be judged in front of a conqueror's court. I wait for the righteous judgment of history. He's not backing down, is he? No, not in the least. He thinks that he's going to be vindicated by history. He thinks that the court is a joke. He thinks it's a that the whole process is a sham and vindictive. He expected to die anyway. Mm. So if he's going to die in a courtroom battle, he's prepared to, to slug it out in court as much as possible. How did the Allied victors of World War II see this trial? What did they think it would achieve? It's remarkable in one sense that they had the trial at all because American, British, Chinese public opinion at this time would have much rather just executed the Japanese war criminal. There's a Gallup poll towards the end of the war where Americans are asked what they would like to do with a defeated Japan. And 13% of Americans say that all Japanese people should be exterminated. So substantially more. And you're getting sort of 4%, 4%, 10% of people who think that there should be some sort of a court martial. So you have more people who are in favor of exterminating the Japanese 
than you do people who are in favor of having a trial. But for those who are pushing for it, then they think it's going to be a grand history lesson that will teach these peoples who have been under authoritarian rule what their governments were really doing. They think it's going to put in place new principles of international law, as you mentioned, that crimes against peace will now become part of our international order. Crimes against humanity will be established as a part of our international order. And they're hoping to build a world that is much more based on law than on conquest. Now, just take us inside the chamber, if you would, the War Ministry office in Tokyo, and describe what it what would have looked like, please. They have a gigantic auditorium in the old War Ministry or Army Ministry uh, in Tokyo, which is one of the structures that hasn't been flattened by firebombing. And reporters there all compared it to a sort of Hollywood premiere. There's very, very bright lighting, which makes it very hot. It's a vast, cavernous auditorium. And tucked away, the judges have offices, which actually used to be offices being used by some of the leadership of the country whose alleged war criminals are now on trial in front of this court. And the timeline of this tribunal is also quite extraordinary. There was massive volumes of evidence presented by both sides. Could you possibly distill for us some of the key bombshell moments, if I can put it like that, and most compelling evidence heard by the bench? The court transcript is just shy of 50,000 pages long. It lasted for two and a half years. And they hear some extraordinary testimony. One remarkable figure who testifies is the last emperor of China, Henry Pu Yi, who if anybody's seen the, ever seen the movie The Last Emperor, that's, that's oh, him, yes, yes. Um, who winds up as a, as a collaborator with the Japanese. He's running Manchuria and says that he's sort of a legitimate Chinese king ruling in Manchuria rather than just a Japanese puppet. So he's marched in there as a prisoner of the Soviets and gives testimony. And some of the American lawyers who are serving as defense lawyers for the Japanese are extremely skeptical. You get Tojo's own testimony where he testifies defiantly that he thinks Japan did nothing wrong. And you also get remarkable testimony from a man, the name sounds a bit similar in English, but a profoundly different sort of Japanese leader, a man named Togo Shigenori. And Togo was the foreign minister under Tojo Hideki at the time of Pearl Harbor. Togo, as foreign minister, argued vehemently that attacking the United States and the British Empire and the Dutch Empire at the same time was a colossal mistake, would be disastrous and ruinous. And when when Japanese leaders said, well, the Americans want us to pull out of China, that's totally unacceptable. The Americans want us to pull out of Indochina, that's totally unacceptable. Togo said, if we need to do it, we need to do it. It's much better than getting into an unwinnable war. Mm. He was so right. Look, I want to play an amazing grab that we actually got from the War Memorial Archives. It's a grab of Sir William Webb, the tribunal's president, who was an Australian. As you say, there were a range of allied powers. But here he is actually handing down sentence, and it's quite something to hear. Accused Tojo Hideki on the counts of the indictment on which you have been convicted the International Military Tribunal for the Far East sentences you to death by hanging.
So that's Sir William Flood, KBE, an Australian lawyer. Tell us a bit about him, please. He's a remarkable figure. He was the Chief Justice of Queensland. He had been one of three judges who Australia had on its own war crimes commission. He had a very rough childhood. Um, Three of his brothers died while they were children. So he's this remarkable Australian figure. And you played that clip from the Australian War Memorial, which is one of the great archives in the world and where I did a lot of research but Webb is a, you know, a really remarkable figure. Mm. He was on quite good terms with MacArthur. He is also, he's, uh, I'm sort of, I'm a bit sad to say this on Australian radio. The rest of the judges kind of hated him. Mm. Um, he was pretty rude and domineering and had real difficulty keeping hold of the other 10 brethren. So there were a lot of them who were quite mad at, at oh, him. Oh, well, yeah. that is an interesting segue because I was going to bring up one particular judge, Radhabinod Pal of India, who issued a dissenting opinion following the trial. Now, he sounds like a fascinating figure. He is a fascinating figure. Radhabinod Pal was the Indian judge. He was appointed there by the British Empire. But this is somebody who, you know, he was born as a subject of Queen Victoria, born in 1888 in rural poverty in Bengal under the British Empire, and pulled himself up through sort of sheer force of education, wound up becoming a judge on the Calcutta High Court under the British Empire. And the Brits, as India's getting closer to independence, they decide they're going to send him off. And he winds up writing a massive dissent acquitting all of the defendants, saying that they had acted as agents of the Japanese state and they couldn't be held responsible, that aggressive war could not really be seen as a war crime before the tribunal was created. And all the judges agreed that if aggressive war wasn't a war crime before the tribunal was created, Douglas MacArthur couldn't suddenly turn it into a crime just by saying so. It had to be pre-existing law in order for it to be held against the Japanese. Paul also questions some of the best evidence that's presented about crimes against humanity. He's very skeptical about accusations about the mass rape of Chinese women at Nanjing. He's skeptical about the massacre at Nanjing. And he is, to this day, a huge national hero among Japanese conservatives. Um, At the Yasukuni War Shrine in Tokyo, there's a monument to him And he's a well-known figure for Japanese conservatives and for a lot of Japanese. Paul's dissent is seen as the real judgment of this trial. They say, you know, basically here we have an Asian voice saying we really did fight a justified war to save our Asian brethren. How was this trial viewed in Japan at the time it took place? It must have compounded the intense feeling of shame that they experienced at being forced to surrender. And of course, it took so much to get the final surrender. What's its place in Japanese history today? Is it taught in schools, for instance? Yeah, people are are quite aware of it. Often what they are taught is a kind of more nationalistic version where, you know, some of what Japan did was in self-defense and Japan was being encircled by these predatory Western powers along with China. So you get a somewhat skewed view of the trial or the version of the trial that's taught, treats it as victor's justice and emphasizes the dissent of Paul. 
the Nuremberg experience meant the Germans, to this very day, learned so much about how you can descend into hell. It doesn't seem to have had that impact in Japan. So Japan is definitely a more complicated case. Germany has been extraordinary in the willingness to understand and repent and atone. And Japan is not as repentant. To give Japan its due, right, it's a profoundly different kind of country than it was in August of 1945. It's deeply democratic. It is very peaceful. It's been a model international citizen. So in that sense, I mean, I think if William Webb or Douglas MacArthur could see what Japan has turned into, they would faint with relief. They would think it's a success story beyond their wildest dreams. And then if you told them, well, on top of that, there are some conservatives who have unrepentant attitudes towards the war, I would think MacArthur and Webb would say, look, we're just so happy that, you know, the country mostly turned out all right. But in the present day, you know, it infuriates people in Korea and in China um, and in Australia, I might add. Japan has made some apologies to Australia about the abuse of POWs. There's some awareness of things like the Burma-Thailand death mm. railway, which mm. is something that, you know, Japanese know a lot about and is sort of, you know, is still a pretty searing national memory. Well, Gary Bass, it's an extraordinary commitment that you've made to charting this. So I do very much thank you for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Gary J. Bass and his new book is Judgment at Tokyo, World War II on Trial and the Making of Modern Asia. It's published by Picador. And one of our texts said he also wrote Blood Telegram, American policy during the Bangladesh massacres in 1971 by the Pakistani army. You might like to seek that out too. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.